Hi, this is Dan Rundy. This is another episode of Building the Future. I'm interviewing my friend Bridget Helms, who's just written a really interesting book called Access for All, Building Inclusive Economic Systems. Bridget's a senior executive at DAI and has had a wonderful career in international development. Bridget, I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be here. Good. I'm so glad. I want you to know I bought your book Retail and I read it and I thought it was really good. Awesome. And at I, least I have a readership of yes, one. At least, at least one. I'm hoping you have family, blood, and kin, yeah. I hope, read it. That's right. A few, yeah. Tell, tell our audience a little bit about Bridget. Now, you, you've had a really interesting career. Talk about where'd you grow up, how'd you get involved in international development, and how'd you end up at DAI? Okay, well, that's a yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to talk about, but that's I'm, I'm to happy talk. to do it. Yeah, good. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> all right. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Oh, wow. But... Uh, kind of an unusual background. My mother is Mexican. Really? I didn't know that. Yes. I'm half Mexican, mitad oh, mexicana. Wow. Oh, no me digas. Yes. And I also have a lot of Swedish in my background. So there's a Swedish and Mexican Oh, my word. Part. So it's Swedish on the outside, but Mexican. Oh, my word. Latina on the inside. Di- no me yeah. digas. I didn't know that. So from a very early age, when we were traveling in Mexico, you know, Driving down these streets, I remember very clearly, I think we were driving in Monterrey or something like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. and looking down these dirt streets and seeing these children kind of playing with dirt, mm. with no shoes yeah. and all this. And I really remember, like, as five-year-old, thinking, what is the matter? Why are these kids, you know, not wearing shoes? So I feel like, even from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to do something about kind of poverty. And as I went through my you know, academic career and whatnot, I became increasingly attracted to uh, private sector and business solutions to poverty. And uh, even as early as my very first job, which was with the US government. Mm. Uh, oh, what did you do? I was at the US Department of Commerce. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep, I was there for nearly three years. Oh. 1985-1988. Okay. Working on the Caribbean Basin Initiative. Oh my word. Yes. So I was. It was a very interesting time, the Reagan administration, yep. and um, what we were doing was so cool because we were promoting imports from Central America and the Caribbean, whereas the entire rest of the International Trade Administration was promoting exports from the U.S. Right. Elsewhere. So nobody understood what we were doing. So we were able to just sort of do a lot of really cool development work, actually, helping to diversify the export base of Central America and the Caribbean. And so starting kind of from there and moving forward, I kind of gravitated over into agriculture. So I did my PhD in um, agriculture and development economics and then worked at IFAD, which is a UN agency in Rome. Were you based there for a while? I was based in Rome. Not bad. Uh Uh-huh. Not bad. Nearly four years in Rome. Oh, wow. It was terrific. It's terrific. Amazing. But working in Latin America. So I still, I start, my, the whole of my first part of my career was very much in Latin America. And then one day I invited a group of people, including Maria Otero and Nancy Berry from Women's World Banking and Mohini Malhotra, who is here today. I invited all these people who were sort of the, the thinkers in microcredit. Yes. Muhammad Yunus, I think, was also there. And a bunch of people came to IFAD to kind of, educate my colleagues on this idea that uh, credit could be delivered in a commercially sustainable way. Ah. This is, I'm talking about 1994, 95. Which, yeah. was in, which was revolutionary Very, at the time. Oh, it was, it blew my mind. And what really blew my mind was this shift in thinking, uh, in development of thinking about 
development is primarily providing kind of charity to beneficiaries as opposed to people being the sort of agents of their own change and buying services that they appreciate, taking out loans, repaying those loans, investing those things. I mean, it was like a complete, you know. It was a, it was an explosion. Yeah. It was wild. It was incredible. And so then what ended up happening is that I ended up coming into CGAP Okay, the CGAP is the Major League Baseball Commission of the microfinance world, right? <laughs> exactly. And so I stayed at CGAP for a long time. I was there for 11 years. I didn't know that. I did every single job that was to be done. Really? I worked with Elizabeth very closely, Elizabeth Littlefield. And I opened up an office at a certain point. I opened up an office in Paris. So you're starting to see a little bit of Did you move a, over there? I did. I, yeah. Oh, wow. I moved to Paris. I was, in, I was in Paris for four years. And what we were doing there was really connecting with the European donors and all the other donors out there and started this whole movement around aid effectiveness for supporting financial inclusion, access to finance, because a lot of the donor instruments at the time, now I'm talking about the kind of early-ish 2000s, the donor instruments still hadn't completely caught up to this private sector-led model of development. So we were helping them to figure out what were the right instruments, the right technical capabilities they needed, what kind of knowledge management, what kind of monitoring and evaluation. And so we that was a really exciting time too. But at a certain point, I started to feel like I was like literally 30,000 feet in the air all the time and really wanted to get back into the field. So I joined IFC. And yes. I think that might be- Where we cross paths. Where we cross paths, exactly. So, and you, you were living in Indonesia? Yes, I was in Cambodia and Indonesia for IFC. So I'd worked in- uh, access to finance, but then I sort of flipped the matrix and went into overall management of all the different uh, business lines that we had. The technical assistance. The technical assistance business lines, yeah. So we were working on access to finance for sure, but also agriculture and infrastructure and forestry and business enabling. And it was around, I would say, that time when I started to realize something very important, which has become my kind of my personal motto. And that is that smart is not enough. That's a great line. Smart is not enough. I have worked with some of the most brilliant people with great ideas, amazing strategies. But if you don't have the tools and ability to bring people along with you to do something different from what they're doing, it doesn't matter how smart you are. So I've really become a student of change management, of motivating people, of trying to understand how to bring people along with me on the kind of change that we want to see. So basically, that has been more of my quest, I would say, in in a lot of ways uh, than uh, the technical stuff. And from IFC, I did a brief stint in in nonprofit and then went to McKinsey uh, for a while, which was really interesting because it was fantastic. I I feel like I got a sort of a crash MBA, you know, working with these, again, very brilliant people, but who also kind of understood this change management piece. I worked primarily with uh, mobile network operators on on mobile money projects there. And that was a terrific uh, experience. But I, again, started to feel like needed to get back to the field. And so called up... uh, my good friend and colleague, Jim Boomgard, the CEO of DAI, and said, look, you know, I need to get back into the field, get my hands dirty. And that's where I, how I ended up in Mozambique. Overseas, I've spent, because of, you know, the yeah, Rome everything. and the Paris stuff as well. But, you know, I've spent half, at least, half of my career, career overseas. overseas. And then, yeah. That's great. 
We and love then, it as a family, too. And how long have you been in, in here in Washington this time? I've been here in Washington for three years. Okay. Uh, just over three years. Or, yeah, three and a half years. And I came back to run the Multilateral Investment Fund at the Inter-American Development yes. Bank. Yeah. And we were able to replenish and recapitalize that fund. Really important. Um, which was super important. But then once I got... You know, that was my main job Your to job, do, yeah. and so then I You moved had this on. opportunity, yeah. Yeah, I had this opportunity to, actually, to write this book and now to run the technical, the sort of the big brain of, of DAI, the technical services. So how did this come about? Did, how did you decide to write this book? I mean, because you're certainly, I mean, it's a, it's a synthesis of your various experiences, which is what it is, and I love the book, and I recommend everyone reads, called Access for All, Building Inclusive Economic Systems, and I encourage everyone to go out and buy it and read it. But what, what prompted you to write this book? Well, you know, Dan, it really came to me like a ton of bricks. And it, it was a culmination of the last couple of years where I realized there are so many new players coming into the development field. It's true. You know, whether we're talking about the millennials who are inheriting 30 or $40 yep. trillion dollars from us, the baby yep. boomers yep. and others, they don't want to invest that money in the same way that their parents and grandparents did. And I, I'm not only talking about people in the U.S. and Europe. Yep. I'm talking about people in Central America, in Africa, who are inheriting money, and they want to do something different with it. Number two, you've got corporates. Uh, when I was at the, at the IDB, for instance, we identified $19 trillion of idle cash on balance sheets really? of big corporates who are already active in emerging markets. And what they want to do increasingly is that they want to invest in their value chains in new ways. They want to get into kind of corporate venturing, right, with startups and incubators and all that other stuff. Then you've got your new philanthropists, the Zuckerberg Chan Initiative. Yeah. That's like a very different way of thinking about philanthropy that's much more business-oriented. And frankly, the institutional investors and the big investors who are increasingly talking about social and environmental change. So if you look at this sort of tsunami of money that is coming towards our sector, the main problem with it is that the people who are sort of sitting on that wave don't really know how to make things happen on the ground in these very difficult environments. And on the other hand, you have a group of people like myself who've you know, done almost every job in development yeah, practically. Basically. And I do understand how to make things happen and many others as well, not just me. But those two worlds just don't connect. And I kind of decided at that point that my quest in life was going to be to kind of collide those two worlds and figure out how to help bring people together from very different backgrounds you know, my stint at McKinsey did teach me that oftentimes we're speaking in different languages mm. between the corporate world and the development world. And how can we help to channel a lot of that flow of capital that is coming, whether we like it or not, and make it work for the majority of the people who are living in these countries? It's fabulous. Okay, so talk a little about your theory of change. Okay. Basically, the primary premise is that markets can help people out of poverty through two main pathways. One is to access to services, and the other is jobs. Yeah. And so the important piece to understand about that is that you need to trace those two pathways across the entire economic system. So starting with poor and low-income people, who are they, what are the segments, what are they doing now? What are their aspirations? And then looking at the different sort of levels of the economic sector, 
starting with the micro level, which is those who provide direct access to services and jobs, the meso level, which we call the ecosystem enablers, a kind of the glue that holds together the supply and demand for services and jobs, and then the macro level, of course, which is the government policy that can either support or, in some cases, thwart yep. the markets from working. And finally, I look at the international funding landscape, which is an area where there's been a lot of really interesting uh, innovation as well, looking at the concessional funders, the impact-oriented funders, and the pure commercial funders who are coming into the space, that sort of tsunami that I was talking about earlier. So what surprised you about writing the book? What were some of the things that surprised you as part of the, you know, you looked at you, there were a lot of things you, I mean, this is a really thoughtful book, but were there some things that you took away as part of either the interviews or conversations with folks and you said, hmm, I didn't realize it was that big or that is, that's a force that I knew was important, but I didn't realize it was going to be that significant. That sort of, there were some surprises like that for you? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, there really, there really isn't any original content in the book in the sense that what I did was curate you curated a lot of information that's out there and tried to organize it into hopefully accessible storyline. Well, I think it's accessible and I think it's a great storyline. Yeah. But a lot of it is stuff you and I know. Yeah. But but as part of the curating process, there must have been things you're like, oh, wow, I mean, I knew that was important. Is it... For example, I'm thinking about like the impact world uh-huh. or the blended world. How big are they really? Because I get kind of two different, I get there's sort of a, an exa- irrational exuberance yeah. version of the story. How, what is your, are you in the irrational exuberant <laughs> camp, if I can put it that way, or on impact investing in blended fans? What do you, what, what, okay. what's your view Yeah, I'll talk about that. So there's two things. One is I would like to talk about this blended finance thing because it, it, I think that what's happening is that it's, it kind of reminds me of those early days of the micro credit 25 movement. years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, like where it was just blown way out of proportion. And it wasn't proportion. just going to be grants anymore, right? Oh, yeah. The, the microfinance was going to solve everything. Uh, yes, it was going to solve everything. And I think in some ways we talk about blended that way now, nowadays. Yes. And I think there's a real risk of, first of all, being overly transactional in our thinking about development because, yes, those transactions are important. It's important to make those deals happen. But, again, taking a systemic perspective, unless all these other pieces are lining up across the economic system, then you will never scale those solutions. And if we spend too much of our very, very scarce donor money and subsidy only on, you know, trying to crowd in and de-risk and all this other stuff for the commercial players, then we may not be paying sufficient attention to these other systemic issues that need to be fixed in the policy area and the meso level and all these other things. So I think there is a little bit of a risk of that, a little bit of kind of glassy-eyed, you know, what do you call it? Irrational exuberance? Irrational exuberance. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that. There's totally a little bit of that. And there is a risk of over-blending. Over blending. Talk about that. Well, when you start to talk about blending as almost anything you can do with a subsidy that might crowd in private money, you can end up over-subsidizing the deals. For instance, you could end up subsidizing deals that probably would have happened anyway. We right. had that problem at IFC from time yeah, to time, right? Yeah, from time right? to time. Absolutely. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know what so, you mean. So, and now, and you may know this, that for instance, the people in IFC, like Kruskaya, Sierra, yes. yeah, Kruskaya, Sierra Escalante, I'm going to get her name right, yeah, yeah. if I'm going to talk about her. Yeah, yeah. Um, she, you know, those people were fighting against the grain, like tooth and nail, For ten five, years ten, ago. yeah, five, eight years ago or so when they introduced this idea of blending. But their idea was very scientific to really say for this deal to go through, if you just had spent this much more on the green part, the environmentally friendly part, then it's okay. 
then that's the part we're going to subsidize to entice the, right. the uh, investors to come in. Very right. scientific. And even that was getting a lot of pushback. Now, today, it's like, oh, you know, pile it on. Everybody, you know, everybody's doing it. And I do think that there are some some serious risks uh, involved there. So, you know, we just have to keep an eye on it and make sure that, for me, it's all about smart subsidy. You know, how do, and it's been that for my entire career, thinking about how to use a subsidy in the way that's going to uh, catalyze and pull in the private sector players so that they will be the ones to continue on and invest and continue providing the services and jobs that people need. Exactly. Okay. So talk about the change in the development landscape. I mean, when you started at a different time, <laughs> it was a much more simpler, let's call it aid architecture. <laughs> so you talk about the kind of the change landscape. Right. Why has that happened? And what's, you know, talk about how radically different it is from when you started in your career. Well, it, it is quite radically different, it's I would quite say. Radically different. Quite radically different. So there's a couple of paradigm shifts that I can think about. One is this one from beneficiary to client. You yeah. Know, that's one. That is that, do you think that's been totally, has that changed? Is that 100% of the aid world? Because I don't know, not everyone's, I think there's still think, some laggards. I think there are some laggards. The other one is is more generally about the role of the private sector. So like, for instance, I was recently at this OECD meeting yeah, and, uh, uh, that in I was Paris. Gonna, yeah, I was going to go to, but yeah. Right, yeah. And it was all about the private sector, the role of the private sector. Well, first of all, you never would have had an OECD meeting talking about the role no, of the private sector. No, 25 years ago. Or not even five 15, years ago. I mean, like, five, really, yeah. that, honestly, this is super new. So I think when that business commission for the SDGs came out and started talking about the opportunities and connected those opportunities to the SDGs, that started to open up much more space among certain UN agencies, the European Commission, and others to start thinking about the private sector in a different way. Because that whole storyline around the $2.5 trillion that's required yes. in order to meet the SDGs. Who, who came up with that idea of that commission? That was a good idea. I don't that know who came up really with it. really good idea. But that was a, a brilliant idea. Because they had businesses from all over the world. It wasn't just American businesses, for instance. Right. And that was th that's a reason, I believe, that we have so much more buy-in to the SDGs, for instance, than we did to the, the MDGs. The MDGs. So so we work at DAI, we work in, in Europe. European Commission is implementing this external investment plan. It's all about leveraging the private sector. You would not have been able to talk to a single European Commission official. At DEVCO, for example. At DEVCO, exactly. You would never have been able to talk to people like that about the private sector very few years ago, I would say, like five years ago. So I think, I do think, I'm seeing a much bigger shift in openness to private sector solutions to different types of problems. Now, where you're still not complete, where people are not aligning as much today is on the social sector. So health and education, health and education, like getting the private sector or private capital involved. There's still some pushback because in a lot of places they feel like that should be the government's job. Now, there was that study IFC did in 2007 that looked at the size and the scope of the private sector in healthcare in Africa. And that was a revelation to me how big it was. It, it, it is big. The reality is it is big, A, now. B, our experts in public financial management are telling me that even if the African governments could collect every single penny of taxes that are owed to them, they still would not be able to afford all of the health care and all of the education needs uh, in their country. So therefore, there will always be some kind of a role of the private sector. But when you think about like private equity and venture capital and impact investors even, 
almost all of that, 90, I'm going to say 93%, I bet, is China and India. Going to China tri- and going India. Going to China and India. If you look at the MPEA statistics and stuff like that, uh, MPEA is the association yes, yeah, it's of... The, uh, uh, it's the Emerging, emerging markets, markets Private Equity Association. Yeah, that, so they're like pretty that. much talking about China in India. When, when MPEA talks, they're talking about China. Pretty much. I mean, that's what I should say is that's where their members are investing. Wow. Primarily China and India. A little tiny, tiny bits here and there in, in Africa and, and Latin elsewhere. America and elsewhere. And almost all of that money is going into infrastructure, energy, renewable energy, fintech, agriculture. Pretty much that's it. So right now what we're looking at is that the frontier of the frontier of the frontier is health and education in Africa and how to drive capital into sustainable business models there. I think that's going to be, in the future, that's going to be one of the more exciting things to keep you know, an eye I, on. I, I want to give IFC credit because when I what struck me when I was at IFC is that there were there was, I think some it may have been because, of, I, I don't know if Peter Voike was the person who pushed them to do this, but they started more than 10 years ago dipping their toe, Looking at that, yeah. dipping in their toes, maybe the way to describe both mm-hmm. education and health, as how they could play a role. Now, mm-hmm. it generates, there's all sorts of you know, generate all sorts of challenges even within the own, even in their own institution of the World Bank Group. Uh, I think you're right. It's the frontier of the frontier of the frontier. That's a good way to describe it. That's it's exciting. Good, I'm, exciting. I'm actually excited about it. I think that there are things that, you know, we're going to start seeing coming onto the landscape. This is sort of like, like you said, this is like microfinance 25 years ago. Yeah. That's great. We're starting to prove the business case. Um, like I'd say, one of the things I talk about in the book is that businesses need to solve a trifecta of problems. One of the problems is availability. How do I get close? How do I get close to you and your home yeah. and your place of work? The second is affordability. Obviously, has to be affordable to me. Yeah. By the time I get to you, is it too expensive? Yeah, it can yeah. ever, you know. Like base of the pyramid. Yeah, stuff. exactly. Yeah, and, and it just costs more. Unfortunately, like a, bo- a poor bottle of shampoo, more. a bottle of shampoo versus a little sachet of shampoo. Yeah, exactly right? that, that kind of, of stuff. Thing. Like, how do you get close? And then the third is quality. So you know, you think about kerosene, for instance. It's really cheap, and it's everywhere and it's the way most people who are poor in low-income countries and even in middle-income countries it's the way most of them light their homes every single day but it is terrible for the environment it's terrible for your health it's terrible so you need that the three the availability affordability and the quality the sufficient quality and those are the three nuts that need to be cracked and they have not yet been cracked so, for so, health and education in Africa. So somebody, somebody's going to get rich figuring out how to, you know, create the toilet, right? It's like the for-profit toilet, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of alternative to, to flush toilets, mm-hmm. right? Isn't that? Yeah, that's that ha- it be, is happening. That, that's actually. one of the that's one of the big challenges. I think, I think the toilet issue is one. I do think there's interesting things with. I've seen things now with drones and drone mm-hmm. delivery of mm-hmm. medicine. Yeah. It's amazing. that We wouldn't have thought of 10 or 15 years ago. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. We, we invested in, in that when I was at the MIF. We invested in something like that in the Dominican Republic. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, I mean, what can happen today that was, mm-hmm. you know. Five years ago. Not even, yeah. Not even five years ago. Yeah. Crazy. It's terrific. I mean, terrific. these are these are all really great trends. I know there are a lot of people who are concerned about certain elements of technology, um, certain risks, especially when it comes to data and They're people's like data. Yes, privacy issues. And also, you know, if you look at a place like Kenya, where I was just there the week before last, it was unbelievable to see the changes in Kenya. I hadn't been there since the early 2000s. Oh. It was like, 
Wow, incredible. And a lot of that made possible by M-Pesa, by, yeah, by technology, by mobile money, cell phone technology, all these other business models that are able to kind of ride those rails and making payments possible, fast, easy, you know, affordable, all these things. It's just incredible what's been going on there. That's awesome. The changes, <laughs> cell phones, cell, the cell phones and M-Pesa, the change in Kenya, yeah. and... Uh, being able to ride those rails, the changing, all sorts of business models have been able to enable. It's, it's incredible. Like, for instance, I don't know if you've heard of M-Copa. Have, have you yes, heard of Yes, I did company? hear of M-Copa. It's the solar. It's the solar home systems. They've sold to 700,000 households. Wow. These solar home systems, and it's so brilliant it's the way they profit. make it work. It's, it's a for-profit. It's incredible how they make it work because instead of everybody going every day and paying a few cents for kerosene that's going to, you know, yeah, choke yeah, them yeah, and, choke you know, them, whatever, them. kill them. But it's their only source. They pay, the MCOPA comes, they install the equipment in their house, and then they can remotely control it. So they pay every day on their mobile money the same sort of few cents that they might have paid for kerosene and to keep the lights on, literally, until they pay for the unit. And then it's theirs, and they have wow. it forever. And it's incredible. Or you can upgrade to the next thing that might mm -hmm. accommodate a refrigerator and a TV and, uh, and other things too. But what's amazing about it is that this company has been able to save those 700,000 households something like $450 million over the next five years That's in wild. savings, plus 75 million hours per month of kerosene free lighting. Amazing impact. Isn't this sort of a similar thing? The other challenge I was going to raise was clean cook stoves. So how are we going to solve that? Is there, is there going to be, are we going to need an MCOPA for a clean cook stove? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question. I think there are some people, I'm not as familiar with that. And But you know, I mean, that yeah, strikes me as like a sort of like, be able to do the this same, is sort of similar. my simplistic understanding is you have a lot of folks who are, you know, in developing countries who cut down trees, yeah. right? And they have to go in the woods and it's awful. And then there's, it's charcoal and it's indoors. And there's lots of people dying from charcoal in developing countries because of it's similar yeah. to the kerosene yeah. issue. And so there's been lots of, it seems to me like toilets and cook stoves. Mm -hmm. If we could, we need an MCOPA for toilets <laughs> and we need an MCOPA for cook stoves. And that those two things in particular, if we could solve those two issues. So I hope someone makes a ton of money doing it and they become the Bill Gates of, <laughs> of clean cook stoves and the, the Bill Gates of, of non-flush toilets. I do know of an organization in Haiti that it has developed a new toilet that uses, actually they use waste from like I think wood chips from the forest industry yeah. or something like that and it's called soil it's a yeah, Irish or organization yeah, 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 yeah they yeah. we also invested in them when I was at the MIFT but they they're really interesting because that solution is also they're thinking about that solution in sort of a circular economy circular perspective economy, right? right so using that waste mm -hmm. to then fuel other kind of biofuels and other things that you can do with it and I think that is really an exciting piece as well going yeah, how do going we think about into things the like future the Circular economy. Yes. I think that's something we haven't thought about in the in this context either. So it's like some it's about bringing different innovations and combining them. So exactly. it's cell phones and M-Pesa. Having a cell phone and M-Pesa allows you to do household penny type arrangements, yeah. and then having some kind of in essence a micro credit like yep. lease. Right? Isn't that basically what this exactly. is? Exactly. Essentially, that is what it is. So it's a combination of like four or five technology and social innovations of the last thirty years. And you were around for sort of the four, you know, Most sort of, of the it. emergence of this yeah. in 1994 yeah. and sort of, of the various innovations that have happened that have allowed all this to happen. 
it's right? so exciting. So if we can have that, if we can have that the kind of combine a series of those things for toilets and and cook stoves, that those things, I mean, if you could, we could solve those two things with some kind of market solution, yeah. that would be unbelievable. I think it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's gonna coming. Happen. It's going to It's coming. Yes. I agree it's going to come. It's totally coming. It's to, I, I agree with that. I it's harder that. to do than you think, though. So I think that this is, this is why. That's where you need public money. You need, like, philanthropy money on the front end yeah. to be willing to lose money to kind of demonstrate the 10,000 ways you can't do it, like Thomas Edison <laughs> used to say, to find the 10,000 and first one where you can, right? Exactly. Okay, so exactly. what so okay, so what are you most what are you most optimistic about? What are you most excited about when you think about development and you think mm. about sort of this agenda because I I was I'm very taken with the book. I, I subscribe to what you're saying and I subscribe to your theory of change, and I think that though I do agree that you need the SDGs help I think that commission helped. I think that there's. I think there's been an explosion in the DFI world. I think yeah. blended finance has helped. But are you are you enthusiastic and optimistic about the next, the upcoming generation of people? Is that you know of, of the development world? <laughs> Chris is no, actually, I really am. You know why? Because they are so much more fluent with new technologies around, for instance, data. So look, data, big data, how to manipulate data to help mm-hmm. inform policy decisions, to help inform business decisions. I think. You know, having that kind of capability. I mean, I know there's a bunch of younger people in my group who, they're all data scientists, and you know, they're really, com- yeah, it's very cool. We're, we have a group that combines. Yeah, so think about that. Twenty five years ago, there was no job called data scientist. No. But there's and that, certainly that's not, not a, in, a career. Not there, in a it's development. Like a, no, and it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. It is a total thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. Right. A thing that I. Don't completely understand, but right, anyway, but I, know, I really I know yeah. it's a thing, and I take it seriously <laughs> and respect it. Right? Very I'm, I'm much. with you. I'm with you. Right, Very exactly. much. So I'm excited about that. I'm also, by the way, I I really think we're just at the very tip of the iceberg of this whole conversation about blended. Just to say, yeah, I, I think we're or, in like or, it's sort of like 19. Let's go back to I love your 1994 example. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm totally buying that because that that that's sort of my reference point too. Yeah. I'd say we're sort of like in 1995 on a microfinance on the blended discussion. Is Absolutely. that about right? I completely agree. Yeah. I completely agree. Where you have, you know, sort of a couple of really cool examples. So I'd like to tell you about an example yep. that we've been working on. So we run, DAI runs the East Africa Trade and Investment Hub. Yes. And uh, you got to tell us about what that is. Okay. The East Africa Trade and Investment Hub is funded by USAID, yeah. and it covers, an, I think, seven or eight, oh gosh, I don't know how many okay, countries, but several a number countries. of countries yeah. in uh, several countries in East Africa. And the purpose is to, to drive regional trade, trade with the United States, and investment from the United States and other countries into opportunities of strategic interest to USAID. So, like agriculture and energy being two of the main ones. And we have worked with specialized investment banker groups and transactions advisors, people who in the past would have never been anywhere near a USAID project. So groups like Cross Boundary or like Open Capital Advisors, and they have been helping us to mobilize $170 million into opportunities in East Africa. And we're doing the final calculations now, but we estimate that we probably spent around $5 million in subsidy money, USAID subsidy money, to get $170 million of investment 
And I think that's a good investment. That is a really and good can investment. We agree that's a good investment. Yeah, I think that, is that a good use of your a, taxpayer I think that, money? Yeah, that's like more than yeah. that's like whatever that is. That's like twenty five times something yeah. like that. No, it's no an, thirty times. It's an amazing more. story. You and it's thirty show- times. So thirty dollars for every dollar you pin, we're going to catalyze thirty dollars. And I'm not saying you can do that every time. No, and but, I don't want to set unrealistic expectations. But however, in that very dynamic, however, it did happen. In that case, that's a good. It's, that's money well spent. Exactly. And I think. And no, who's going to say that's not right? Tip. I, okay, I agree with that. I also think. What's your take on if I said to you that there is, there's lots of local capital, like there's, you know, I think AID, IFC also have done this, the IDB have done this. They've created stock markets or pension fund markets or insurance markets or leasing markets, uh, normalized banking system. Yes, there's a microfinance sector, but sort of, you know, a formal financial system that's catalyzing local money and that they're with a global middle class and emerging middle class. Isn't that isn't that also part of this discussion in your mind? Yes, it is part of this discussion. And it is also part of the critique of this discussion because the, the focus has been very much on international money money coming coming into in. the countries but you know in many cases those flows are dwarfed by the by I the domestic it. markets but unfortunately there's just not a lot of for instance credit available in many of these markets because it's much more profitable for a given bank to invest in government paper, yeah. the treasury bills, and just kind of hang back. They don't even need to bother right, with I, all of the Citi, hassle. If I'm the, if I'm of, the lending loan officer at Citibank, if I've got to choose between put, borrowing uh, Paraguayan Paraguayan government bonds versus like going out and doing all the work to provide a loan to a farmer or some small business, it's a, t- a lot more work. I could have used a stronger set of words, but a lot more work <laughs> to go out and do all that. So that's the point you're making, right? That is exactly the point I'm making. And that is the reality in many of these countries. And even though there has been work done by IFC and others on building capital markets, the reality is that there are very few sort of exit opportunities for people who are interested, whether you're living in that country, whether you're a Kenyan or whether you're outside of Kenya. It's, how do you get your money back? How do you get your money back? Okay, there's, so if I put a hundred dollars you know, in, so if I've got, there's a there's a reason we have a venture capital industry in the United States is, I'm a venture capitalist. I invest in company Acme Company. Acme Company grows and grows, and either either a strategic buyer, so either Acme Company buys me out, or Acme Company is bought by a strategic buyer by XYZ Company, or Acme Company goes public, right? <laughs> right. Those are exactly. like, yeah, right? Those are, that's how you exit your investment. Yeah, or maybe another bigger fund might come in. Yeah, like or the some other fish. fund. Somebody, right, somebody buys you out. Somebody buys options. you out. Somebody buys you out. Yeah. In a developing country, let's say you're buying into somebody's family business, so that, that they're not going to, there's, there's issues there. There's okay. issues there. <laughs> if you, there may or may not be a, a stock market to take your company public. There's probably limited private equity capital there's probably very few strategic buyers that might buy Acme Company, right? Those are all the issues that come up in terms of exiting, right, for equity investments. Exactly. And so while many people recognize the need for equity and equity-type instruments, there's a lot of challenges there. And this is where we're, we are seeing some real interesting innovation happening. So where people are looking at new instruments that are not necessarily equity, but equity-like. Yeah. So revenue-based loans, sometimes they're called royalty-based loans. These are instruments that enable the investors to get paid get paid and also make in some cases multiples of the amounts that they put in depending on the yeah. success of the business but it's more related to revenue which is much more let's say sustainable yeah. than a typical VC approach 
or PE approach, they're looking for the big hockey stick tech Win. wins, the unicorn yeah. type investments, which in general, in our markets, we're not going to see that. We're going to see more many. slow and steady kind of wins, wins the, the race. race. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, right? Exactly. So I like, I'm optimistic about all of that. It's slow to happen because typical investors want to see a specific fund structure with specific fund managers, with specific types of limited 10 year sort of mm. get in, get out, make the money. But increasingly, we are seeing people who are willing to take a bet on more creatives. So look, I think, you know, I, what I'm what I'm thinking is, is that there's, we ought to come back and check in with you in five years, because <laughs> I see like, where are we in 1994? Or are we in 1999? Yeah, right. on some of these issues? Because I think I, I completely subscribe that we're sort of in the first, we're not, we're not in the first inning, we're kind of in the second inning on a number of these issues. Yeah. Uh, I'm optimistic as well. I'm, I've been shocked and pleased by sort of the mind shift. Some of it I think is generational. I do think that some of it's been about new entrants. Some of it's been about sort of a, cha- a more sophisticated thinking about uh, theory of change. Mm-hmm. Some of it I think has been generational changes in philanthropy. Mm-hmm. I think there's been some sophisticated, more sophisticated in companies in terms mm-hmm. of either social license to operate, right. uh, in terms of their role of corporate philanthropy or corporate mm-hmm. social responsibility, but also sort of their thoughts about how they're going to go after new business of 95% of their customers are over season a lot of that's in emerging markets, how they operate and what they do, it's different. So I think there's been a whole series. I also think the the rise of a global middle class and these new yep. technologies. I mean, you cover all this in your book. So I think what's great about your book is it's all in one place. Exactly. That was the that idea. That was the idea is to put all of that, <laughs> exactly. all that mouthful I just said in one place. <laughs> and that's why I think you should go out and buy and read Access for All Building Inclusive Economic Systems by Bridget Helms, who who um, who is a senior executive at DI. Bridget, thanks for coming in. You're what welcome. A pleasure. Fabulous. Congratulations. As Thank I'm you. I'm really happy for you. This is a great accomplishment. I'm envious. I've wanted to write a book for a couple years now, and so I have book envy. <laughs> and so I really congratulate you. This is fabulous.